0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
1: Welcome everyone to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris. Today's guest is Darren Hayes, the founder of pigskindispatch.com and the host of the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch a podcast that takes the listener through the historical events, people, inventors, and plays that has some significance to the game of football. This is part one of a two-part episode with Darren, where we discuss his passion for the game, his experience as an official, and we look back at the pioneer era of football. Reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram, or shoot me an email to let me know what you guys think. I hope you all enjoy our conversation, and with that being said, Let's get on to the show. Your website and your podcast is Pigskin Dispatch and it's focused on positive football. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Uh we just want to put a, a positive spin on football because you know football is an entertainment uh venue for people to to get away from real life and I sat back a couple years ago you know being a Steelers fan I know you are too but just having the stories of Antonio Brown coming up when he was still with the Steelers especially that last uh, half a season it was just it was like making me want to rip my skin off you know it was just driving me crazy it wasn't fun for me it wasn't a positive uh, experience for football and I wanted to I said you know I want to just go to a site and not see things about knuckleheads and people doing bad things associated with football. What about all the good people that have done good things for football? That's what I wanted to do. And it really uh, took off, And especially with the historic aspect of things, uh, just seeing you know the great positive aspects of football.
1: And what kind of role has football played in your life? Because when I read your website and listen to your show, you have a very passionate approach to the game. That I don't think many casual fans would share in that same regard. So, can you describe thus far in your life what role football has really meant to you and how it's played a role in your life?
0: Well, it was uh, you know, everybody when you're a kid you have uh, heroes you look up to. You know, I know like a lot of my friends. I you know I I was born in the mid '60s, so you know back when I was real young, all the kids around town you know wanted to be astronauts. You know and do things that nasa was doing i was always drawn to football I, I just i loved it from even when i was little and i think that's because of the passion that my grandfather and my father had for it you know every saturday and sunday that was what what the men did you sat in the living room and watched football on the the one tv in the house you know and i, I just grew from there and my dad would bring home uh, books and magazines and i would just eat them up you know that was probably one of the first things i got to read and then when i started playing when i was uh a younger younger guy, it just brought discipline to my life. and I just loved the structure of football. I loved um, you know that you had to have set plays and you had to practice them and you you know exercise. I, I just loved the whole thing about it. But uh, then as I got older, I just, I just love the competitiveness and the, the chess matches that are within football, not, not just the chess matches, 11 offensive players against 11 defensive players, but the, the one-on-ones and the strategies of what technique are you going to use? You know, you, you have basically you're one-on-one with a, a man, and then you're playing in a, a team aspect of, you know, 11 on 11. I just, it's just so complicated. And, you know, every play is different and has a different outcome. It's just, just uh excites me i love it
1: yeah I, I like how also you talk about um when you're young you enjoyed it because it brings you closer to your grandfather your father as you get older it brings you discipline and then when you get even older you appreciate the chess match and the one-on-one matchups so i think it shows how a game can resonate with you at different points of your life and always keeps you going back to it
0: yeah it definitely does i mean i i loved it so much i didn't get to play much in high school i went to a a pretty large high school and i was a pretty small kid i was uh when i graduated was 160 pounds you know soaking wet and uh i i got more into soccer and i regret that i wish i would have played played more football in high school but i played it for like uh, five or six years leading up to until i was like a sophomore in high school uh but then i when i went into college, I got into football officiating for high school. And I did it for 27 years. And that brought a whole new passion. I got to be around the game and a little bit different aspect than most people get to do. And you see a lot of things and you learn a lot of things about the rules. And uh, it really got me into writing about football on officiating websites. And I I got to write about history of football. History of rules is where I started off. And it got me, you know, into people like Walter Camp and Amos Alonzo Stagg. And it just Really, I, I just love that nostalgia and that older era of football. It's uh, that's that's my biggest passion, the early NFL. And, you know, I, I, I love the whole thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I could just see it on the smile on your face. I mean, it's uh, that era also is something that I'm very passionate about. And I definitely want to do a deeper dive into that later on in the show. But before we go deeper into that, do you recall your first uh, memories of football or your very first exposure with your father and your grandfather? Well,
0: we, my father, and he still does to this day, except for this COVID year, uh, uh, we didn't have much football, but my father goes to his local high school where he graduated from. He still lives in the same house he grew up in and goes every Friday night to the home games, you know, during the season, goes to most of the away games. And that's where, what he did, he took us when we were kids, we would go to the ball game, you know, and uh, watch high school football. We live, uh, a quarter of a mile away from uh, division two uh, Pennsylvania uh, college, you know, Edinburgh university. And that's where I attended, but uh, the football field you could see from our house. So we went every Saturday that they had a home game, we'd go to their games, listen to them on the radio when they were on the road. Um, you know, we're a hundred miles from three NFL cities. So we got to go see a lot of those games and actually they used to have uh, Camps in in Edinburgh, you know, the Steelers would play the Buffalo Bills, their rookie camps would play back uh, probably in the early 90s. So we got to see the rookies come and play and some of the starters would come and undress, but you get to see them and they play Mm -hmm. at that field a quarter mile away from our house at Edinburgh. Uh, the Pitt Panthers would do their spring training at Edinburgh University. So I got to see the Panthers come in every year, you know. So it was around a lot of football when I was a kid. And just it was exciting because you see all these big name players you watch on TV in college and in uh, pros. So really helped a lot. Too.
1: Did you ever get to see uh, LaVon Kirkland by any chance?
0: I never saw him in person. Well, I saw him at games, never was on field level and saw him, you know, saw him from the stands.
1: See, I would always love to wonder what it was like to see him up front because I mean he was almost three hundred pounds playing inside linebacker, and he was really good in coverage too. You know, he was a pretty well well rounded player. So I, I always wonder if there was if he was as big as he was in person, which I imagine he was as he was on television.
0: Well, it's funny you say that. You, I know we were at a game one time and we had we were down. Uh, probably about 10 levels above the, the Steelers bench at a game we went at uh, Three Rivers. And Kirkland was uh, was playing at that time, and he was standing out on the field, and I think it was Casey Hampton, you know, standing in front of him in the nose tackle position, and Kirkland was almost as big as Casey Hampton visually yeah. from, you know, 50 yards away, you know, wherever you are in the stands. And, and the other linemen besides Hampton were smaller than Kirkland. It was unbelievable. He was a big dude that had a, a lot of mobility, you know.
1: Yeah, well, he had that um, in Super Bowl 30. He had that sack on Troy Aikman that at a, it was at the point in the game where Pittsburgh was really clawing back in. I think it was they scored off the onside kick to open up the um, second half. And then I think after they got the ball back, maybe it was like early in the fourth quarter, but Kirkland had a big play that gave Pittsburgh a chance to come back and then Neil O'Donnell threw that second interception, I think.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Larry Larry Brown was his leading receiver that game. Unfortunately, <laughs>
1: yeah, two big two big receptions. Yeah, MVP of the game.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, you know, what, but I remember Kirkland from that Super Bowl. Wasn't there a play where Emmett Smith was? They were like first and goal or inside the five, and they fed it to Smith like up the A gap, and Kirkland met him in a hole. You know, both in the air. Kirkland met him in the air, and you know, just like a you know, it was a truck hitting a truck, and it just yeah. stopped impact. You know, that was a great play too.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that's actually a pretty I'm not saying it's one of the best Super Bowls, but I think it is kind of an underrated game because it's, it's interesting to see how Pittsburgh was one of those teams in the 90s where I think they were kind of ahead of their time in terms of the style of offense they were running. You know, they had like a lot of five wide sets, you know, Yancey Thigpen, uh, Cordell Stewart. Then he would take some snaps at quarterback and at running back. Uh, that was like a, a fun offense to watch, and you know they were pretty heavy underdogs in that game, and they made it really interesting. It ended up being a ten point game, but I think the score was a lot closer than indicated.
0: Yeah, those those two interceptions that Brown had were humongous. You know that was definitely the turning point in that game.
1: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And so you mentioned that you were a high school referee for twenty seven years. Yes. So uh, what was the driving What was the driving motive to become a referee?
0: Well, when you're a starving college student and you need money and, uh, one of my friends, uh, a little bit older than me said, Hey, if you want to make some money, come here and, you know, hold the chains on Friday nights and Saturdays for the high school game. Cause I, you know, I, I lived in the same town I, I grew up in. And I said, all right, so i will give you like 25 bucks to stand on the sideline and watch a game. And, you know, you have to wear stripes to do it. And then they get you some, somebody talked me into taking a test and, you know, do, doing like little gritters games and things like that. And, uh, work your way up you know just like anything you start out small and you work your way up so.
1: what was the hardest part about becoming a referee for you like what was the hardest part about examining a game from that vantage point <laughs>
0: well having what they call rabbit ears uh you know when you're when you're viewing a game you hear everything that's around you you know, you hear the somebody you know and stands down from you yelling something out you know, it might be funny or you know you might you might be offended about it, but you have a reaction to it. Right. When you're an official. That's one of the hardest things to do is to not react to what's happening you know, when you're on the field behind you, what people are saying. Coach, you know, coaches, there's, there's a lot of things that uh, you'd be surprised that are said when you're down in a football field uh, unless you played or been on the field. And you hear, you hear everything down there, but you just got to learn to tune it out. And the other thing is not watching the ball because we're trained on television to watch where the ball is, where you're an official, you have uh, players that you're supposed to be focusing on, and that's where your eyesight should be. Even though the ball might be, you know, five yards away from you, you might still have responsibility to be watching something else, and that's that's tough to train yourself. But it, it comes with a, a few years of seasoning.
1: Does that um, did that experience? stick with you, like as a fan of watching on TV? I mean, do you always watch the ball now or do you, are there still certain positions on the field that you'll watch and you won't even pay attention to where the ball is?
0: Well, I was fortunate. I, I started off as a line judge and a line judge is uh, is on the sideline, right on the line of scrimmage, opposite of where the chains are. You know, the head linesman okay. is the official that operates the chains. He's on the line, one line of scrimmage. Opposite is a line judge. So I got to see the same view Basically, we see on television, you're seeing, you know, offense on one side, defense on the other side. And you but you learn as an official, like a line judge and anybody that's on the defensive side of the ball, you have to almost act like a defender. Uh, I don't know if you you played football and you were on defense, but you had to see, you know, read your tackles. What are they doing? Are they pass blocking or are they run blocking? Mm-hmm. And I find myself still doing that. And I often sometimes look and I'm, I'm watching what the officials are doing, you know, because I worked I worked many of those positions. I, I watch what the pros do and say, oh, that's how you know they get in position for this or and I haven't officiated in five years. And I still find myself doing that sometimes. But, you know, there's other times where you're I just, I'll watch what the linemen are doing. You know, just because that's that's fun. I, I I just have to watch for holding and everything. And hey, let's see what this tackle's doing against this, uh, you know, five technique or whatever. You know, what's going on? And it's just kind of fun to watch that. And uh, and I, you appreciate the offenses a little bit more too. Uh, like you know, the college game especially. I love watching the college game when you know somebody's running. You know, uh, a four wide set or uh, you know, so, you know sometimes when they go into uh, you know the older games, you know, T formations and wishbones and things like that. Just mm-hmm. watching the, the strategies of it, I, that's kind of fun to watch too. But uh.
1: well, What is it particularly about offense that makes it kind of more, that makes you appreciate it more as a referee as opposed to defense?
0: Uh, the the offense is just, uh, you know, you have a certain set of rules. You have to have, you know, requirements are you have to have seven on the line the five five of those people on the line at least in high school i think college is the same way have to be numbered 50 through 79 Mm -hmm. Uh, but what you can do with those formations you know you want to put bigger splits on your linemen to spread the defense out a little bit more or to gain try to gain some advantage you're always trying to gain an advantage and that's what the defense is doing too trying to get that advantage over their opponents and just uh it's just amazing what some of these coaches come up with. And it's just interesting for me to watch and see how they react, especially in game. You know, if somebody comes out the first years, you know, how many, how many even pro games you see somebody comes out and just on fire on offense, their first two possessions, they go down, and score two touchdowns, and team down 14 nothing. You're like, oh, this game's over. But then the team makes a, the other team makes an adjustment and almost nullifies the offense the rest of the game. You know, that's, that's the things that are amazing that those coaches can do and, uh, have their players react differently and line them up differently and do some different schemes. Just, it it, it just fascinates me. I I love that part of the game.
1: What are, uh, have you ever seen any really crazy formations while you were fishing?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, well, I was my last uh, 12 years, I was a, a referee, so I'm in the offensive backfield and you're sort of the, the crew chief of the, the The whole thing. And we had a playoff game. We had to go down to to Pittsburgh to do uh, games like two games before the Pennsylvania State Championship game. So these are some big time teams playing. And his coach comes up to me, goes, Hey, he goes, We're going to be running the single wing. And I'm like, Going, "Uh, okay. And he goes, Have you ever seen the single wing? I'm thinking, I don't want to act stupid. I'm like, Sure, sure, I've seen it. Well, this guy, he comes out, and this is before it became popular. The single wing is actually what we call wildcat today in the NFL. And um, the single wing, they had no quarterback. They had four people in the backfield, and this center is snapping the ball every which direction, and mm-hmm. one of these guys is getting it. All four of them passed. All four of them caught passes. All four of them ran. All four of them blocked. And it, they were in constant, you know, once once that ball snapped, guys are going everywhere in that backfield. And it took some time to adjust. You know, you're used to, you know, you know, two backs and a quarterback and, you know, you know pretty much where the backs are going. You know pretty much where the quarterbacks going. That single right. wing, it was a crazy, crazy thing. I've never seen anything like it, and it's uh, it was fun to to watch. Though it's uh, really a pleasure to do to work that game.
1: There was a um, a high school in California in 2008. I can't remember what the name of the high school was, but they had something called the A11 offense, where they had they try to make everybody on offense eligible. And the way that they were able to do that is, is, I guess, in high school, if you line up more than seven yards, technically you're in a scrimmage kick formation Mm -hmm. or something like that. So they would give everybody like a number that made them eligible, and they would have basically three guys, interior linemen, quarterback and a running back, and everybody else would be spread out. And some guys would kind of drop back into the backfield, and other guys would go downfield, and they would just have – you know three different people on one play that would get the ball in the backfield and throw it downfield and everything Mm -hmm. like that. And yeah, they had some crazy plays and then it was outlawed eventually, but it's cool to see that kind of ingenuity, especially at the high school level where I think a lot of it kind of begins.
0: Yeah. what they're taking advantage of. I I do remember that there's, there's on in punt formation, the eligibility rules, like I told you, there was five players have to be 50 through 79 numbered on scrimmage. Uh, kicks in high school uh, when somebody seven yards more than seven yards back the uh, numbering system is off because some of the smaller high schools you know they don't have guys that can go down and cover punch you know they might have some the big beefy guys can't run down and cover punch so they have to bring in like number 33 as a tackle but so the formation uh, the position at the snap is what position they are so they're position ineligible so if you're an interior lineman you're ineligible to go down for uh, a pass. The only ones that are eligible are the people on the line that are on the terminal ends, you know, on the line of scrimmage closest to each sideline and the four backfield players. So you, know, you have six out of the 11 that are eligible. And one of those guys is usually throwing a pass. So you really only have five eligible. But that's what right. they are trying to take advantage of that skim- scrimmage kick formation numbering rule.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They, they closed the loopholes down there and there were, there was talks about a professional league that was based around that rule, but nothing ever materialized. Unfortunately, I think it would have been cool to see, but you know, maybe, maybe sometime down the road.
0: Yeah. Um, now that, that brings us something interesting. It's sort of a new, uh, thing and I haven't got to watch it yet, but Joe Montana, I guess has sponsored a league where they have like seven on seven, uh, and it's like a seven on seven drills that you do in practice, but you, the, uh, fans on the internet it's all the games are on the internet they pick the teams you have like a pool of same pool of players every week but some you know, somehow the fans pick the teams and right before the game and these guys throw on a different jersey and play each other uh. i guess it's really exciting it's a lot of passing and joe montana is like a major player in it. you know he promotes it quite a bit
1: uh, no I, I haven't seen that but it's purely passing Like you can't run with it at all
0: I think they do. Like I said, I haven't seen the game. I just read about it. But uh, okay. I think there must be some running and stuff too. But with seven on seven, there's probably – there's not a whole lot of blocking. You 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 know, you have a, a center, and that's about it, and the rest is uh, eligibles.
1: Well, I, recently I was watching six-man football. And when you watch like some of the earlier games compared to now, because now it's kind of like I don't know if you've ever seen a game, but they'll have a center that will snap to the quarterback and then they'll snap it to someone who's behind the quarterback. And that person's going to be the one to throw and everybody else goes out for a pass.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: sometimes, especially like early on, six man football was kind of set up like you would find like a uh, like a VR option team. Like you had a center, then you add two people next to the center, a quarterback and then two backs. And they kind of ran it like a traditional offense. But now, obviously, it's mainly just like a pass and scramble league or sc- scrambled game. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, something like that I think is fun. I mean, those kind of like gimmicky football leagues. Mm-hmm. I think I, mean, I think they definitely have their place.
0: Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of places down in Texas that the school districts are so far away from each other. So they're smaller yeah. schools. I think they're playing like eight-man football down there uh, in a lot yeah. of places in Texas. Yeah, I've I think, never uh, seen one of the games.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Layton Vanderesh actually for the uh, Cowboys came from an uh, eight man high school. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Hmm. Now, you mentioned too that you were also writing for a referee magazine.
0: Uh, not referee magazine, it's, there's a, a defunct uh website called officiating.com, and uh-huh. I also wrote for another uh, defunct website that used to be called Sports Combine. And I used to do a lot of the officiating articles for it. Uh, both, the one was all officials writing for it, but they assigned me to football history, and uh, that's that's where really my love of football history really took off. You know, like I said, getting to you know learn about Walter Camp because I had to go all the way back to the roots of the game and figure out where different rules came up with. I'd get challenged by my editor every week. You know, hey, can you, where did the the term uh, down come from, you know, just things like that. And I'd have to go back and research it. And almost all of them would go back to a guy named Walter camp. (laughs) So it's just amazing.
1: Yeah. That's something I really love about your website is because you have the uh, football history category. And then that subcategory, you have a year by year breakdown. And even before that, I mean, you have sections where you go into sort of like the ancestral games that Mm -hmm. aren't necessarily lineage to our games, but they do share a lot of similarities. Um, And I think that's interesting to kind of go back that far, going from like Rome to Greece to the days of medieval football, like in the 17th and 18th century. I mean, it just kind of shows that a game like ours, as unique and scientific, I guess, as you could say it is, has some experiments generations before it came about. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting, even
0: uh, soccer, you know, because soccer was sort of before rugby. Uh, rugby was sort of a derivative of soccer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but back in the Roman times and Greek times, and uh, they'd had uh, games, you know, like Harpiston and uh, Harpestrum. And they, the objective, object of the game is you had two teams and one team had to get the ball over the other team's end line or goal line uh, in some way form, or fashion. They didn't really have goals even at some of those games. So... That's really, you look at it, that's really the basis of soccer. You're trying to get the ball down the field and kick it across a goal. Of course, now they have posts there to get it in between. Same thing with football. You're trying to move down the field against an opponent, get it across a goal line. Uh, you know, Rugby's a similar game. I mean, even if you look at basketball, it's similar, you know, it's just, trying to go so they're all have similar in nature but they all sort of came from those early roman and greek games and even there's some games in ancient china and egypt that i i haven't even wrote about yet but i've been reading about uh, recently that they have some similarities too so I might go back further than, than what i have on my, my website you know before like,
1: Greeks. Uh, the, the, the uh, kuju have you ever heard of that
0: yeah, I think that's the name of one of the the games. Yeah, the,
1: yeah. the Chinese game. Yeah, it's basically mm-hmm. like soccer. Yeah, I'm not sure what the rules are, but you can only play with the feet, and they have teams of you know a couple, however many people.
0: Right. So you know, who knows? Maybe Marco Polo went over to China and saw that and brought it back. The right. You know who who knows? But uh, it's interesting. It's uh, you know worldwide and it's ancient.
1: So if you if you could have been there for any of the those ancestral games, which one would you have wanted to have seen in live?
0: Oh boy. You know, I, I think some of those Greek games, uh, because they used the Greeks used it as a military exercise. They were training their soldiers for war and trying to teach them teamwork and you know, working together against a common enemy. So, so I think maybe some of those might've been a kind of uh, fun to watch and they were, I guess, pretty bloody. And you know, people got hurt badly and, you know, died from it, but uh, you'd have, you know, 20, 30 guys on the side, I think, in some of those, and just you pounded on people. That would have been kind of interesting to watch. Kind of gory, but it would have been interesting to watch.
1: Yeah, and I think in Italy they have this yearly festival or tradition where they play a game similar to the one that we're talking about, like yeah, Harpistom. Ca- Calcio, they call it. Yeah. Yeah. Where they basically have, you know, they have like sort of a line themselves, but they're not blocking. They're just straight up fist fighting each other. And then mm-hmm. you have certain people who are trying to get the ball over and then their job is to evade tacklers. But it's kind of weird because you're watching literally a brawl between people and to people who are listening, I'll post a video of it to people who are just, uh, fighting, not even near the ball. They're just fighting each other. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. <laughs>
0: and I, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think that game of Calcio, that's where, uh, uniforms different colored uniforms came into to all sports i believe came out of the game of calcio if i'm not mistaken it's been a while since i've read about it but uh i think that you know in ancient italy that's where that came from
1: wow okay
0: and they were like yeah. you know the city-states playing each other so one city-state was red and one was blue and they were their their colors
1: see it just keeps passing from generation to generation man the influences were indeed. right all right <laughs> now, what were some of your resources for researching football history and its development?
0: Well, uh, you know, probably my favorite, and it probably definitely shows on my website because uh, that ancient history that you're talking about, I got a lot from uh, Park H. Davis, and he was uh, just an interesting guy. Um, he, he wrote a lot about uh, football. As a matter of fact, the um, he he named the uh, national champions from like. 1932 back to 1869 before they had national championships. He went back and named him and said, okay, you know, Yale won this year, Harvard won this year, you know, and, uh, the NCA accepted it. That's how influential he was. And he was, uh, he was a coach. Uh, he, well, he played in the eight, late 1880s. Uh, he was a, a coach, uh, I believe for Lafayette was where he, where he coached most famously and had a little bit of controversy there. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think uh one of our our great uh coaches at Michigan, uh Fielding Yost uh, was a when he was a player, he played um escapes me before he normally played. I think it was West Virginia he normally played for. I mean, might be mistaken there. But he uh had one game where he played for Lafayette in the middle of the season and it went back to his original team <laughs> and there was all kinds of controversy. And Park H. Davis was the coach that brought him on for that one game. And uh, uh okay. I think it was to beat like you know Penn or somebody, and that's uh, Lafayette beat them with that game. So.
1: Gosh, gotcha. okay, I didn't know that. I'm, I'm not too familiar with his uh, coaching career because I I have a copy of his book and I love it. I'm I'm like you where that was one of the first books I read, and it was really influential in terms of tracing sort of like a linear history of yeah, certain fo- elements of our game.
0: Yeah, football, the intercollegiate game from 1911. Yeah, yeah that's
1: yeah. a great one. Have you? What about like? Are there any other books that? helped you out like along the way too that maybe didn't stack up to that, but you found informative.
0: Well, I mean, books from that era are a little bit, they're a little bit harder for us to, to read because mm-hmm. they don't use the same football terms we do. They don't speak really the same. Uh, they speak more of the, the King's English than our what we've evolved to in this a you know, hundred years later. But uh, a lot of books, you know, Walter camp himself wrote a lot of books. Uh, he wrote a lot of magazine excerpts and he did some things with other people, you know, Casper Whitney and, uh, uh, you know, just some of those, those characters back, uh, uh, Dylan, the, the coach from Harvard he wrote a book with. And so I, I dig it into some of those for some of that early uh, college football history. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and then some of the modern writers, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, Jennifer Taylor Hall's book on, uh, Amos Alonzo stag, you know, I love that one. Uh, you know, I'm currently reading some of Chris Willis's books. I have his Red Grange book I'm reading right now. Uh, you know, just fascinating that, that some of the research they did in the modern age, going back 100 some years to, to look at uh, these, these folks. But, yeah, that, that, that's I do a lot of reading.
1: Do you uh, did you ever hear of Alison Danzig? No, I'm not, not familiar. He was a sports historian and he, I think he, by trade, he was a sports journalist too, but he published a book back in 1956 called the history of American football. And huh. it goes so detailed into almost every fabric of the game. I mean, he talks about like the history of like certain formations and we'll spend three or four pages just talking about one, like the history of like the T formation and then how the single wing came about. And Huh. Rules and passing game. Like reading one of his books actually brought up um the history of the curl route in football. And basically, huh. like what happened is when Newt Rockney was in, that when he was playing at Notre Dame, he went out for a pass. And back then, you know, it was people just kind of tried to get behind the defender and then throw them the ball. Well, he was running and he tripped. And his quarterback, uh, Gus Dorian, I think it was, he threw the ball, but he underthrew it. So new uh, Rockney had to get back up and run to the ball. And then they started kind of experimenting with routes and doing these sort of like, you know, systematic running patterns instead of just everybody going deep. Huh. So it's like that, that's that's a book that just brings about like so many minute details about the game. It goes into such detailed history. And a lot of the information he got was brought from writing letters to guys like uh, Bob Zupke and Andy Kerr and a lot of those early pioneers of the game because, you know, this was 1950. So a lot of those guys were still around and they were older at the time. But just so, such a great resource and information that if you ever get a chance, I would highly recommend getting that. I know uh, you, would, you would enjoy it.
0: I'll have to. I'll have to get that in my collection. Yeah, I, I mean, I have so many books. My my father and my stepmother are uh, and my aunt just love to go to garage sales and flea markets. And uh, anytime they see a, anything with a word football on it, they you know bring home books. Uh, I have a lot of old books. I have piles of them. I haven't even gone through yet. Uh, and like I said, I like to read a lot of the newer stuff too. So, but that, yeah, I'll have to get my hands on that one. That sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. Like the list just keeps growing and growing, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure.
1: And uh, you, you've mentioned camp and uh stag, um who do you think are some of the pioneers that we don't talk enough about from that era that pioneer era
0: oh boy i mean i guess i guess the 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 players themselves that played in that era because you really you really had to man up to play football back in that stocking cap era you know yeah Uh, guys were just you know from what i understand it wasn't uncommon for people just get come up and just punch somebody else in the face in the middle of the game Ah, uh, they had you know one referee in the middle of the field, the, you know, one official, and it was the referee, and they didn't have whistles back then. Like Walter Camp, you see pictures of games where he's officiating; he has like a cane in his hand. And I always thought, I thought, well, maybe he had a little bit of a gimp to him or something. He needed it for walking. But no, they all officials had that. That's how you got players off the piles. They would pile up, and you're gonna you know probably come in and yell, "Okay, plays over," and start whacking guys with the stick, you oh, know, to goodness. get them off there. So. So even though officiating was brutal, you know, so.
1: Yeah, it it feels like that, like, uh, even though it's physical and brutal and like this very innocuous nature about it, (laughs) right? that's that's just the way it was. Like people were just so aggressive with one another.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, but there's, there's guys, you know, even guys like, you know, uh, Naismith, you know, he's the founder created basketball, but when he was a player, uh, I've got an article on that, and I've done some studies on that. He's credited with one of the first ones. There's sort of a controversy: who was the first one to wear a helmet and uh, or head protection in, in football? You know, and it was college football. And Naismith is one of those three that are credited with maybe being the first one to wear it in games. And he did it just to protect his cauliflower ear because somebody you know beat the snot out of him when he was playing center the week before. So his girlfriend yeah. and him sort of rigged something up to <laughs> cover his head.
1: You know, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. So, I I've seen some photos of uh, early, they're basically just nose guards, and they it has almost like this Hannibal Lecter look to it. You know, it, it's kind of a frightening image, but that's what they kind of use just to protect their like mouth and their uh, nose that they would just strap on over their ears.
0: It, it looks like a cup. You know, are wearing your athletic supporter. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> what it looks like. That's, that's right. yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. That's that's a spot on analogy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> What about um? Do you know anything about like George Woodruff?
0: I, I'm not super familiar. I haven't done a lot of research on him, but uh, sh- share some things with me.
1: Uh, he, I think he's a guy that is definitely was an innovator that was ahead of his time. Like he, because uh, you you mentioned a lot of, like how Stagg was the inventor of the uh, onside kick, mm-hmm. and he actually had the onside kick from scrimmage. So before you could have it like he had because he was famous for pulling his guards off the line of scrimmage and putting them in the backfield. Obviously, that was back before you had like, you know, laws about how many men had to be on the line of scrimmage. So mm-hmm. he would do like an onside kick and um, anybody who was behind the kicker could recover it. So that was kind of like the precursor to like the the forward pass. And you could still do that in the Canadian game. But yeah, that, that was kind of interesting how he would tinker with the rules and kind of created like those, you know, predecessors to like the pulling plays and stuff like that.
0: You know, that's it's interesting you say that because uh, I mentioned uh, Coach Deland at uh, Harvard and him and camp were sort of friends, but they were, you know, Yale and Harvard, you know, those, those two football teams don't mix well. It's like, you know, oil and water, you know, they, they always want to get the better, especially in early football. Those are those the two major competitors. And there's a story that uh, Deland sort of resurrected the, uh, the flying wedge on offense, it, just like you're describing. And he practiced it and uh, got into the game. He was expecting that Yale would jump off sides when they saw all the players back in the, you know, forming up for Harvard. And mm-hmm. he would get an advantage over them because the officials would warn, you know, Yale and, you know, he'd be able to come out in the next play and just take advantage of them. Well, uh, Camp became aware of this kind of in an odd way. Uh, there was the guy that donated the practice field to the Harvard team. Was visiting from California. He like he used to live there. Donated his field. Moved to California, but he's back visiting. Watched uh, Harvard practice. Goes back to California. He's talking with some some guy at a restaurant or something or a cafe and uh, talking about this formation that uh, Harvard's preparing to play Yale against. And next table over, there's a, a Yale grad there. Mm-hmm. sends a telegram or somehow he got the information back to camp camp knew about it prepared yale for it and uh these guys didn't jump off sides and it just drove dealing crazy and yale ends up winning that game you know it's, he wow. finds out a couple of weeks later they go on a it's like a track meet or something and camp's there and camp confesses that's how he found out to uh, one of the, the harvard players so that's
1: wow that's funny that's, <laughs> yeah some crazy <laughs> what
0: is, stuff you hear in
1: some of these stories. What are the chances all right <laughs> yeah and they uh, what was it, Pudge Heffelfinger?
0: Oh yeah, first pro yeah. player.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was kind of like the the bull that was supposed to like dive in to the uh, apex of that formation and just split mm-hmm. everybody up in the wedge. Yeah, yeah, it's interest it's interesting how like this is an era where everything kind of can like come together. Like you have one of the first guys and uh, Pudge who was there. Breaking up, you know, one of the early formations in football, and then he would go on to become the first professional player.
0: Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, he was a popular guy. I mean, I think all the amateur teams wanted him to come play for him. And uh, what was it? The Allegheny Athletic Club down around Pittsburgh uh, hired him. It was was like 10 bucks or something to come play a game back then.
1: 10 bucks? Wow.
0: Yeah, it was was something small like that. I forget the exact number. It might have been 50 bucks, but it wasn't anything today's numbers and dollars. No. wouldn't
1: wouldn't even get you a ticket nowadays right right (laughs) so if if you had to kind of create like maybe like your top three most important rules um that advance football to like where we are now or kind of advance it to the point where the game was became recognizable as we knew it like what do you think those three rules would be
0: well the first one 1880 walter camp you know creating the line of scrimmage Mm-hmm. But creating scrimmage, you know, from scrum and rugby. Uh, that's the biggest thing because that sort of put the wheels in motion. Now that had to create uh, a guy a, that snaps a ball. You know, we, we know today as a center, it created the position of quarterback, which, you know, very important to football as we know it. So just that one action that he did, you know, had those same, same uh, similar offshoots right at the same time. So that's that's probably number one. I think uh, right around that same time he created the down system, and at first they started off it was three downs to go ten yards, which I believe the Canadian game still plays that way. Um, so I think that's another big one, and then probably 1906 with the uh, college football, you know, making the forward pass legal after you know Teddy Roosevelt chewing chewing them out a little bit.
1: Uh, I think that's the third biggest thing. Now, if you could take any of the, like the pre-forward pass. Era rules and implement them in today's game. What would you like to see?
0: Oh, the pre-forward pass. Oh boy, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it was as interesting of a game as it is now. I think. Really? I think. I think the forward pass adds a lot of
1: different elements. That well, you can keep the forward pass, but you can add in one oh, of the oh. rules that they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely oh, okay. not gonna go. Okay. Oh. Yeah, definitely not gonna play like it was pre 1906. Hmm.
0: Oh boy. Uh I guess m- maybe the the wider fields that they had. You know, yeah. they had fields of all kinds of dimensions till so they went to the fifty three yard wide field. Uh, you know, they were sometimes a uh, hundred yards wide and one hundred twenty yards long. You know, there's all kinds of crazy things. But maybe a wider field would be interesting. You
1: know. Yeah. Again, you know, the Canadians are uh, still holding on to that longer field.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. Where they have a 110 between goal lines, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a game that I never really got into heavily. You know, it's, it feels like something that's good to watch in the offseason. But people always say, oh, it has so much more passing. Yeah. But it also has a lot more punting, you know?
0: And it's uh, two men in motion. And I, I mean, I think I'm going to try to follow that a little bit more because I've got some, some people that I've been talking to the last year or so. Through this whole COVID thing, they've got me a little bit more interested. And there's a, I mean, I'm only an hour and a half away from Hamilton. And, you know, Are you sort really? of, yeah. So it's, uh, it's not that, that far to go. And maybe if, I, if they open up the borders and we go across the border, maybe I'll try to go up there and, and catch a game in person just to see it. Cause everybody that's uh, in the CFL, they, they're very passionate fans, you know, especially with only, you know, a handful of teams. Uh, yeah.
1: Crazy. And it's, and it had, and it's Go ahead.
0: And they they might mix it up with the XFL I hear too. Rock is talking to them.
1: What's the uh, what's the arrangement with that? I haven't read too deeply into it.
0: Uh, I I haven't either. But from what I understand is they want to try to work out almost like a AFL NFL type uh, thing where they both play their own teams and maybe have a common championship is one thing one scenario I've seen uh, described. But I don't know a whole lot about it. But I know they are in some deep talks.
1: Yeah, that no, that'll be interesting to see, yeah. to say the least. Right. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny too because it's like when you look at uh, Canada and you know the Harvard-McGill game, uh, yeah. that kind of was kind of the game that because obviously you have the Princeton-Rutgers game, which was uh, I guess ball owned is I make you think that's how you pronounce it. Was kind yeah. of like the it was kind of the game that doesn't really bear a lot of resemblance, but the Harvard-McGill game was kind of like when the The roots for what football would become were kind of laid.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. I don't like when people say that 1869 Princeton Rutgers is the first uh, football game, American football game. I I don't think it is. Maybe it's the first American soccer game, you know. But I don't think it's the first American yeah. football game. The Harvard McGill that weekend, you know, one ge- one day they played more of a soccer style. The next day they played. Uh, you know, McGill favored the rugby game. And that's sort yeah. of where everything started to mesh, you know.
1: Yeah, Harvard had, like, their – uh well, the Boston game, I guess they called it. like mm-hmm. The uh, the Oneida Football Club that they played, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah, I'm glad they decided to do the uh, pickup game.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, that that would have been fun.
1: Now, when we go to, like, the modern era, like, kind of post – like the post nineteen fifty eight world championship game, like when we get into like the television and you know sort of like the booming business of football, what is your favorite area um era to examine
0: uh probably the the one I grew up in uh, the the nineteen seventies i I just love that era of football, but that's that's the guys that i you know cut my teeth watching you know so and on all the teams you know plus. You know, our Steelers were pretty good then, too. So it's, it was exciting for me to watch. And I really got into it. And, you know, looking at the box scores every single day, studying every single game, you know, every Monday morning and find out what was going on. And you just had some colorful announcers, you know, some great announcers, you know, the Howard Cosells and, uh, you know, Keith Jackson's. You know, he didn't do too many NFL games at that point. But just, I, I just love that whole era of football, the college and the pro game from the 70s i think it's great
1: <laughs> do you like uh kurt gowdy
0: oh yeah yeah i love gowdy uh yeah. enberg you know I, I love all those old uh, announcers
1: who are some of your favorite players either like on pittsburgh or just whoever was in the league at the time
0: oh boy well you know being a western pennsylvania guy i i loved watching tony dorsett when he played for pitt and i even I hate to say this but I I like watching him when he wasn't when the Cowboys weren't playing the Steelers. I I loved Dorsetts game. I thought he was a, mm-hmm. a great back. He was exciting to watch. You know, of course, any of the Steelers. I I just, you know, couldn't get enough of watching them. Uh but I I got the opportunity to uh go and watch um uh, the Earl Campbell's rookie game, first game in Cleveland. Uh so a buddy of my dad's is a Cleveland fan, got some tickets, said, hey, you want to come see this guy Campbell plays coming up with the Oilers, you know, and seeing that guy. We're sitting up in the I don't know if you've ever been to Cleveland Municipal Stadium, the old stadium. This thing mm-hmm. is uh, it was like the Roman Coliseum, you know, it had these giant pillars up yeah. in the sixth level. And you're watching the game and you can't see like 10 yards of the field because you got this giant cement column in your way. And it's like yeah. climbing climbing a ladder to get in, you know, cement steps are like a ladder. You're going straight up in the air. But even up there seeing Earl Campbell, his legs were like tree trunks. I mean, that that dude was just, you know, super powerful lower body. I've never seen anything like that if you've seen pictures of him, but he's amazing. You know, his, his, his thighs are almost the size of some of the other guys' waists. That's how big they were.
1: Wow. Yeah. I I've seen, the old I mean, I've I've seen games from that era and I've seen the NFL highlight film where I, I can't remember the team that he's playing it might be Cincinnati but he's running and then someone grabs onto him and they hold onto his jersey but he just keeps keeps his feet moving and the jersey tears off and he's just running with his shoulder patches just flopping all over the place. I mean, right, yeah. he was a really a real iconic uh, player.
0: Right, and that brings up some of the other fun stuff from the seventies. You know. The away jerseys, you know, they're, they're a terrible idea. But God, it was fun to watch a guy get tackled and his whole shirt's ripped off. You know, that was, that was kind of fun to watch. And you know, stick them. And uh, yeah. I was just talking with that about somebody with that the other day. It was just, it was just a fun time. And it was fun to be a kid. You know, you're trying to emulate what these pro players are doing. So hey, when you get tackled, you want your shirt to get ripped when you're running. You want to have stick them when you're playing little gritters on the back of your helmet and put it on your hands. You know. Didn't really do much good. You every time you got tackled and your hands are in the grass, you come up and you look like you're the straw man or something, you know. So,
1: yeah, there there definitely does seem to be this sort of uh like seventies is almost has the last sense of purity in a way, where the, the, there is a certain amateur spirit of football before the eighties rolled in, and I think that's kind of when you had a lot of players and the holdouts and uh, you know, bigger contracts kind of came into being. So it does feel the seventies was kinda like the last decade where football did have like this sort of uh coming of age quality to it before it really became a real spectacle.
0: Right. You know, I mean some of those players from the seventies, you know, like I think like Terry Bradshaw was making like, you know, hundred thousand dollars you know, in the first season. I mean, some of these guys, uh, I think it was Lambert or Jack Ham, they were working a job in the off season. You know, yeah. they weren't they weren't the salaries that they are today, and they weren't training all year long like they are in today's era. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of a lost era of uh, they were more like you and I. You know, they're just a working guy just trying to go get a paycheck instead of being a millionaire that's uh, playing football on Sundays.
1: Well, I think that's what made the game so relatable for a lot of people, too. I mean, I was reading uh, – did you ever read the book Three Brook Shy of a Load?
0: No, no, but I've heard of that one.
1: Yeah, like it's it's a journalist who follows uh, Pittsburgh in 1973. So it's like the year it's right after the Immaculate Reception, and the journalist just follows him around, follows the team around, and he talks about the players would go out to a drink at a bar and just like talk to the people who were in that same bar. You know, nowadays, you know, you have you know hole in the wall places that no one can find you and things like that. But then they post everything on Instagram. But anyway, you know, you just have like the sort of camaraderie with the city. You know, it's just not uncommon. They were just kind of like you or me, except, you know, they were on television playing a game. But it was it was still fun to see just kind of like the transparency. Because even like a lot of journalists back in those days when they were going into like the eighties or nineties kind of reflected back on what it was like in the seventies, being able to just have like open relationship without the agents and the lawyers and with the feeling of anything they say could get them into trouble sort of attitude.
0: Yeah. uh, I got to see a little bit of that, like in the nineties. So before Heinz field, when they were still three river stadium, they had a bar called the Clark bar that was sort of uh, probably 500 yards away from uh, three river stadium. You know, the parking lots was, was shared with the stadium parking lot And that was sort of a tradition, you know, before Steelers game. My buddy and I, we had a streak that we'd go to games. So we had like 13 home games in a row that we had attended where we, if we drank uh, an Iron City light at the the Clark bar before the game, the Steelers would win. So we said, oh God, we got to continue this. Well, the one time we went over to the Clark bar after the game, it was like a one o'clock game. So we got over there. We're over like six, seven o'clock and there's, you know, most of the people had dissipated. We were just waiting for traffic to clear out. And in comes a bunch of the Steelers into that barn, oh, I guess. Yeah. So we found out that they go there after the games a couple hours later. Uh, so we started doing that for some home games. We got to meet a couple of interesting guys. I don't know if you remember, like Jonathan Hayes, he played tight end for the Steelers. Uh, no, I don't remember him. He, he was a, sort of a journeyman, but he played a couple of years with the Steelers. You know, got to got to talk with him quite a bit. And they were they were good guys, you know. We'd buy them beers, they'd buy us a beer. You know, It was kind of kind of a fun thing. So maybe that's a little bit what uh, folks back in the 50s and 60s are talking about when you, the players were more relatable.
1: All right, everybody, that's a good place to end this week's episode because later this week, Darren rejoins me on the show for a game of Steelers trivia. It's going to be a fun episode for fans of the Steelers in football history. And if you aren't a fan of either, then still feel free to drop by, because maybe you'll learn something new, or maybe when you're out playing trivia, you'll hear a question that was on the episode, and you'll already have the answer. But until then, take care everyone.